I think if I was going to give anybody advice about business generally, it's be persistent. You know, if you have a good plan, don't be distracted. Realize you're going to have ups and downs and just keep at it. The oil and gas industry, the driving engine of the world economy, delivering prosperity, innovation and abundance across the globe. Here are the stories of its key players, directly from the leaders themselves. This is Bulwark's Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, where real experiences are passed on from the leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Here is your host, Paige Wilson. Welcome to this week's episode and a happy new year. I'm sitting here this afternoon at the Capital Girls City Center with my guest, Randy Stilly. Chief Executive Officer of EFRAC Well Services. How's it going? Well, it's slow. It's slow because, well, yeah, we just came out of holiday and yeah, that's that's kind of how that works in this industry. Huh? It really is. And, you know, the past two years, I'd say in particular, you know, business has really slowed down toward the end of the year as people have exhausted their CapEx budgets. Right. And they're not quick to start up after the first of the year either. Right, right. And then some people's New Year's actually start in April because of the tax purposes and all that other stuff too. Exactly. But yeah, I totally understand. Before we really get into to it. I wanted to ask everyone as usual, please leave a review on iTunes. That helps people out there find my show in case they're interested in it as well. Randy, let's talk about how you got started in the oil and gas industry. Well, when I graduated from college, I had a degree in aerospace engineering. So I had a choice of either move to the West Coast or go to work for something in the oil industry in Texas. What made your mind up about that then? You know, mainly I didn't want to be out on the West Coast. Oh, okay. Uh, after a couple of site visits out there, I think I got rained on both times in Seattle. <laughs> and and nothing in California was interesting. So I said, okay, let's come back to Texas. <laughs> yeah, come on back. <laughs> All right. So let's discuss your career after that you made that decision. Sure. I went to work for Halliburton. And the main reason they said, look, we won't put you in an office. We'll put you out in the field and let you learn about the oil business. Well, that's the right way to start it, huh? And so uh, that sounded like fun to me. You know, so after, you know, after spending four years in classrooms, yeah. it's like, okay, let's get out and do something. And so I, you know, I spent 22 years at Halliburton. I started out as a field engineer. And when I left, I was uh, vice president in charge of production enhancement for Halliburton. Okay. Yeah. And then after that, I went to, I was president of Weatherford for several years. Oh, okay. And then I've moved on from there as well. Did a little bit of work with some private equity firms. Uh-huh. Realized I was better at an operating position than private equity. Yeah, but you got to try it out to figure uh, out whether or not, you know. It's, exactly. It's, exactly. And so after that, I actually had a chance to work with some folks I had uh, met previously. Some ex-Goldman Sachs guys that started up a private equity firm called Limerock Partners. Uh-huh. And we started up a company called Hercules Offshore. I definitely know that name, too. And that was back in 2004. Wow. And we took it public in 12 months. And our $65 million investment when I left was worth about $2 billion. Whoa. So that was fun. Yeah, I guess so, huh? Making some big money. All right. So what are, other than the downturn, that's, I mean, that's pretty typical reason for trials and tribulations, but what are just some of the things you really had to face that kind of got under your skin? Or I think the worst thing about the industry, and you have to get used to it, is the extreme cyclicality. And there's really not much you can do about it. Just about the time you think you know what's going on, something happens that changes everything. 
And that's been the oil and gas industry for my 40 years that I've spent in it. Yeah. Do you have any examples of something it's just, like that? Uh, you know, it's, it's every time you think something good is about to happen, it goes the other way. I, I can think back to, you know, the downturn back in 1986. Right. And, uh, you know, prior to that, everybody thought, oh, this is great. It's going to last forever. And then it didn't. Yeah. And, you know, I can remember I was actually running Halliburton's operations on the North Slope of Alaska at the time. Burr. uh, (laughs) It was, uh, you know, it was the biggest operation Halliburton had anywhere in the world when I went there. Mm -hmm. And by the time I left, you know, we'd had to lay off people and this, that and the other. And our business was about half what it was uh, by, I'd say, 87 or 88. Goodness. So that was, that's a tough experience, but I think you kind of learn from that. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think the industry has learned from it? Unfortunately, not very much. Yeah. We keep making the same mistakes. <laughs> you know, we overinvest in good times and then we underinvest in bad times. And so it just, it increases the cyclicality and, you know, people really have a hard time planning. And, you know, the EMP companies, you know, they're at the mercy of their investors. You know, they want to spend a ton of money when times are good. They don't want to spend any money. They want to take it all back when times are bad. Mm -hmm. And it makes it difficult when you're talking about long-range projects, particularly in the international markets. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that, definitely. So tell me about your current position as CEO. Well, about a little over a year ago, I was out looking around for things that were disruptive from a technology standpoint. And I'd already seen a couple of companies that came out with electric frack technology. And my previous experience of running Halliburton's frack business, you know, back 20 years ago, told me that there's definitely some better ways to do things. And so I found a couple of companies that were working on some interesting technology for electric frack. And we put that together and built some prototype equipment along with Lime Instruments as one of our technology partners. And started testing it early this year, did long range tests throughout the summer and started looking for a contract about, you know, I'd say, you know, August or September. Okay. And unfortunately that's right in the middle of when things just, the bottom fell out of everything. So my timing has not been good on this. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, it happens. It happens. But you know, we, by being second entrance to the market, we've been able to take advantage of different technologies and better technology than I think some of the guys that started it up like evolution well services and us well services, you know, both have done a a reasonably good job of introducing electric frack technology because we've come in a little bit later to the game. We've been able to take advantage of some things that they didn't have access to. Right. You know, I think we have better control systems. We have better power systems. We're utilizing a lot of technology from the automotive industry where they've been electrifying cars. Yeah. And so we've been able to utilize some of that with what we're doing. And so we'll we'll end up with a fully automated electric frack system that we control everything from gas processing through power generation to running the frack job all from one central location and really with only about a handful of people on location. That's excellent, yeah. I mean, you don't want to be caught out in the field in the rain. or no, You know, nobody you know. wants to be out there, and it's a safety issue. It's an right. operational issue, and the more you can automate, the better you are. Right, and it also helps with security as well. That's right. Excellent. All right. Other than, you know, the, when the bottom fell out, what are, what are some challenges you've had to face? I mean, you, you basically got to watch other companies, like you just mentioned, make their mistakes first and kind of learn from them. What, what's something you've had to learn on your own? Well, I think the key for us as we got into this and started building prototype equipment and testing it is you've got to get the technology right. Right. You've got to get the engineering right. You know, we're dealing with things that are, it's not new. It's not really new technology. It's just new to the oil field. Right. 
And so, you know, you have to worry about things that you wouldn't have worried about in the past. You have to worry about harmonics. You have to worry about power sharing and load sharing for the electricity. You've got to think about things that you didn't think about before. You've got to think about grounding grids on location because you don't want to electrocute people. I mean, we're, we're sitting there running. <laughs> or do you? <laughs> so we're sitting there running with, you know, 2,600 volts coming from our generator to our, our, our pumps, for instance. Right. Well, you know, that's a lot of electricity. Yeah. And, you know, we've got 30 megawatts of power sitting on location. Wow. And so you think about that much electric power, you have to think differently about the way you do things. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Because it, it just takes a moment and that's then right. that's it. So the nice thing is, because it is pretty easy stuff and it's pretty simple electrical engineering, we don't have to have diesel mechanics and people like that. Yeah. You know, we can hire young electrical engineers to work on location. We hire people that just have an affinity for electronics. And it's actually been pretty interesting. The, the key, though, really is to get the engineering right up front. Yeah, yeah. We don't want to get out there and start re-engineering on location. And, and I think both companies that started this early are probably on about Generation 3 right now. Oh, gotcha. And yeah. They've, and they've only been in business a few years. Goodness. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So if you had one piece of advice to give our audience, what would it be? Yeah, I think if I was going to give anybody advice about business generally, it's be persistent. You know, if you have a good plan, don't be distracted. Realize you're going to have ups and downs and just keep at it. And that's kind of hard in today's world. There's so many distractions. It's really true, but, you know, you can't just back up the first time you run into a roadblock. That's true. You just find a way around it. And I think the key, certainly for my career, is just not give up. Yeah, yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. What book influenced you the most and why? You know, I think certainly business-wise, the one book that influenced me the most is probably a Good to Great. I've heard of that one before, and, yeah. Uh, it's, you know, it's not a new book, but it's a very good book on business. And, and I've read it actually a couple of times. And it's, it's something that's worth referring back to. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, I, I actually had, I interviewed someone a couple of months ago, I believe, that said the same thing. And, and the matter of fact, read it multiple times. Yeah. And, you know, and I don't read many business books because there's so many of them out there and most of them aren't worth reading. Right. You know, probably I'm more likely to read biographies and things like that. That's kind of what I'm into as well. Yeah, exactly. I'm a big documentary yeah. fan. And, so. Yeah, Churchill biography is just amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It really is. And I've watched a lot of documentaries on him as well. What is your most used business tool? I'd say uh, the tool I try to use most is strategy. Okay. And not from a formal sense, but realizing if you don't have a good strategy, it's hard to have a good plan. That's very true. And, you know, and I don't believe in strategies that last forever necessarily. And I don't think, you know, five-year plans work in a business where things change in six months. Yeah, that's true. But if you can refer back to a basic strategy and stick with it, if it's working, you don't really have to change things. That's true. Yeah. Kind of have to find the, the niche there and, the, like you said, be persistent. You know, and, and I think if you can couple that with, the, you know, the right team of people and have the right culture and they all buy into that strategy, the rest of it takes care of itself. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. I mean, you mentioned a, a few companies on here already. Who's your most respected competitor? I'd say, you know, probably Halliburton and Schlumberger. Okay. And the reason being is they've both been in business a long time. Yes. They've done a lot of things right. They've done a lot of things wrong. But both of them learn from their mistakes. And that's the reason they're still around after all these years. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. Very, very true. What's your most important lesson learned? I think my most important lesson learned is trust the people around you. 
Yeah. And you that's, that's kind of hard to do, though. It, it's hard sometimes, but you have to realize that everybody is trying to do a good job. You know, there are not that many bad players out there. Yeah. And, and you have to trust the people that, are, that you're working with to at least try to do the right thing. Right. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. And sometimes you come across people that just aren't a good fit for... And if they're not a good fit, that's fine. You know, yeah. I, you know I've, I've had to fire people that were my friends because they weren't a good fit. Yeah. And, I th- and most of them went on to do things that they were much happier with. Yeah. And it's funny how the world works, yeah. isn't it? And how everything just works itself out. So why is your role to oil and gas important now to the future of the industry? I would say it's really critical that the industry looks at everything that we do and try to do it better, be more efficient at lower cost. It wouldn't surprise me to see oil prices hovering around $60 a barrel for a long time. Yeah. You know, we're not going to get bailed out by $100 oil. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. And so we've got to find out ways that we can all make money at about 50, somewhere between 50 and $60 a barrel probably. Yeah. And and to do that, you need things like EFRAC. Yeah. Because, you know, we save our, for a, a typical frack crew operating, say we're, say we're operating, say, 18, 20 hours a day. Mm-hmm. We're going to save our customer between a million and a million and a half dollars a month per frack crew in fuel cost. Wow. You know, that's that's real money. Yeah, that's, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And we can do it safer because we have fewer people on location. We don't have to worry about hot fueling trucks with diesel and things like that because we don't have any. From an ESG standpoint, it's, it's a it's a no-brainer. Yeah. You know, our emissions are 99% less what you get with a diesel engine. Interesting. Yeah, because I've, I've seen well sites just yeah. overcrowded with frack exactly. trucks. And, 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 and the other thing is because our equipment is less likely to wear out because, you know, we don't have engines, we don't have transmissions. The only thing we really have to worry about are the pumps themselves. And we only run those at about 80% capacity. Wow. So, you know, the, the view we have is that we can operate longer with less maintenance at a lower cost. So we should actually be able to operate at an overall lower cost than our competitors, as well as saving our customers a million dollars a month. You're on the right track. <laughs> so, you know, to, to me, it really is a no-brainer. And I know the, re- the reason it's not moving as fast as I'd like. People just don't like change in our industry. That is absolutely true. And they don't like to try new things. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it's 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 incredibly true. Where do you operate? We don't even have our first crew out. We we have our prototype equipment built. We have a you know blender, a five thousand horsepower pump trailer and some other equipment that we've been testing. And we hope to have our first crew in operation probably by the middle of this year. Okay. Yeah. Where are you looking to I think, you know, it's most likely gonna be either in the northeast because there they really have a need for a smaller footprint that we provide and they've got lots of dry gas up there that they can use. Yeah. Or out in the Permian where it's just everybody's looking for a cost advantage. Yeah, no kidding, right? Goodness. What's your favorite podcast? Other than this one, right? <laughs> <laughs> There, there's a podcast that Texas Oil and Gas that's actually a really good podcast. Uh, Ryan Ray? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no. That's I've a, had him on. He's yeah. great. He's it, wonderful. It, it's a really good podcast. Yeah. yeah. Shout out to Ryan Ray. Awesome. I'll have to text him later and let him know that you mentioned him. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. You have any good field stories? I'm not sure I have any good ones, but... <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I think, you know, the interesting thing about it, you know, and I've worked all over the world. Right. Is that it doesn't matter whether you're in Asia, whether you're in the Middle East, it doesn't matter whether you're in Europe, 
wherever you are, Latin America, just anywhere you go, and I've worked all over the world in my 40 years. In fact, I spent about half of that time living outside the United States. Mm-hmm. What I've found is in this industry, it's pretty much all the same everywhere. Yeah. You know, you have people that work hard. They're interested in doing a good job. And the interesting thing, I think, more than anything else I've found out is that oil and gas people are really environmentalist at heart. Yeah. More so than you'd ever believe. Everybody thinks that we're big polluters. We're really not. No, we're not. You won't find anybody in this industry that wants to do anything that's not a good way to do it. Right. And then you have all these other people that are also environmentalists that want to make us look bad. That's right. And it's it's really kind of hard to do that unless you just make things up because really the industry does everything it can to be environmentally friendly. Yeah, it does. And we try to tell people that. And and it's the way things are now in this world with the Internet and all this knowledge at your fingertips, it's hard to differentiate what's true and what's not because we even have people that go, I don't believe your science. Yeah. But it's science. (laughs) Do you not identify with you know, it, it's just, oh, it's frustrating. It is. Yeah. So, all right. Thank you again for joining me, Randy. If people want to reach out to you and or get to know more about EFRAC Well Services, how can they go about doing that? I would say the best way to do it is just send me an email. All right. Yeah. And you're also on LinkedIn. We just I recently yep. connected. And then I'll, I'll make sure to put links to all of that in the show notes. So if people want to just click and check you out, then... Easy peasy. That's right. All right. That concludes this episode. So just remember, it's up to you to open the next door. Hey, everybody. Alex here with the events on deck for January 2020. First of all, Happy New Year. We have a couple of great events coming up to kick off 2020 with y'all. The first one will be a Houston happy hour taking place on January 16th at the Cannon from 6 to 9 p.m. This event will be all about artificial intelligence for oil and gas reality not hype the event will feature a panel discussion and include drinks and snacks be sure to get your tickets you can find our event bright link on linkedin twitter or facebook or in our modal point newsletter every month the next happy hour we're having is our denver happy hour on january 30th from 4 to 6 p.m at liberty oil field services this event will have a panel of geos and feature a live recording of the Crude Audacity podcast. So it'll be super cool. Be sure to join us. Also get your tickets once again from the links posted in our Modal Point newsletter or on Oil & Gas Global Networks, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. We also will be having a Pittsburgh happy hour sometime in February with the date coming soon. So be sure to stay tuned for that. Other events on deck include the Houston... API Energy General Meeting on January 14th. Guest speaker Eric Switzer, VP Global Services of Baker Hughes, will be discussing accelerating transformation in oil and gas. The 2020 Industrial Market Outlook and Networking event will be on January 23rd in Houston, and they will be discussing the latest trends that will impact project spending in North America, including the Gulf Coast region, over the next 12 to 24 months. Lastly, the Wildcatters Ball will be held on February 7th, 2020 in Houston. This ball is the primary oil and natural gas industry fundraising event for the IPAA Educational Foundation. The proceeds will go toward funding the foundation's energy education programs. That's all for this month. Thanks for tuning in, guys, and check in next month for the events on deck for February. 
Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com.